Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome all to the Most Notorious Podcast, I'm Eric Rivenis. Our episode today is an interesting one, perhaps a bit off the regular beaten path. It's about the Erie Canal, or more specifically, a series of intrigues and even a murder connected to the Erie Canal. But before we get to that, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone that has become a patron at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. I've got my first $8 a month patron, and she's been listening since the podcast started three years ago. Colette from Australia. Thank you so much for your wonderful continued support. If you want ad-free listening and bonus content, head over to the Patreon page and become a patron. That's patreon.com slash mostnotorious. See you there, and on with the show. Well, I'm uh, pleased to have as my guest today novelist and journalist Jack Kelly, who is here to talk about his, his book called Heaven's Ditch. God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal. It's a series of fascinating and occasionally disturbing historical threads uh, woven around the construction of the Erie Canal. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Eric, it's a great pleasure. So, so what motivated you to write a book about the Erie Canal? Uh, I think the seed uh, of the idea for it really came out of my childhood because I grew up uh, almost uh, on top of the Erie Canal up in upstate New York and western New York. And um, I used to be able to ride my bike over and watch the barges go through the locks. And um, I was also lived near Palmyra, New York. And whenever I would ride through that town with my family, someone invariably someone would say, that's where he found the golden tablets. And this was Hill Camorra, which was just south of Palmyra. And uh, I didn't know who they were talking about. I didn't know what the golden tablets were about. 
but it was very intriguing when you're a kid to imagine you could dig out in your backyard and uh, and it, and it was something that happened right down the road. It wasn't some often some mythical land. It was something that happened there. So that uh, referred to the beginnings of Mormonism, and um, I just gradually got interested in it. And it was sort of a homecoming for me to do the research because a lot of it happened right where I grew up. So, yeah, I do want to talk about uh, Joseph Smith in a bit, but I'd like to ask you about the canal itself. I mean, there have been, I'm sure, lots of books written about the Erie Canal, but for those who may not be familiar with the canal, can you talk about the, the construction? Well, even before that, when did the, the idea for it first surface? How was it built? And, you know, why was the building of it important? Yeah, the the idea for the Erie Canal um began to to percolate around 1800. Before the Revolutionary War, all the land west of the, for the most part, the land west of um, the Appalachian Mountains, which included western New York, was Indian territory. The Iroquois Indians were uh, occupied western New York. Uh, Their hold on that was broken in the Revolutionary War, and people started to trickle out there. But the problem was that the transportation to get over the mountains and the roads and the Mohawk River, which does run up from the Hudson River out into the western New York, was not reliable. And I think around 1807, there was a man named Jesse Hawley who was trying to to sell flour that was uh, from wheat that was grown out in western New York. And he went bankrupt because he couldn't, the transportation costs were too high. And while he was in debtor's prison, he started thinking about what if you connected Lake Erie, which is at the far end of western New York, and the Hudson River, which is at the other end, and dug a ditch in between, then you could have a, a, a reliable and low-cost way to get produce from western New York out down to the markets, which were mostly in the east. He wrote a series of essays. That idea then began to catch on, and um, it was very quickly picked up by the state legislature, and the construction of the canal began in 1817. So this is a book about the Erie Canal, but it's also a book about a series of stories that revolve around the canal's beginnings, right? Yeah. How would you differentiate this book from some of the other books that have been written? Well, as you mentioned, there, there's been uh, a number of very good books written about the construction of the canal and all the, uh, you know, it was a phenomenal achievement. Uh, you know, it's almost it's almost a miracle in itself to think about digging a canal. Uh, you know, people imagine the Panama Canal. A lot of people are familiar with the Panama Canal, but the Panama Canal is only 48 miles long. The Erie Canal is 360 miles through what was mostly wilderness. So it was, you had to cut down the trees, you got to get rid of the stumps, and there was nobody there to help you, you know, take your whole workforce out there. And it was, technologically, it was a, 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 a almost incredible achievement. So there's a lot of been, been written about it, the, the, the nitty-gritty of the technical aspects of it. I was more interested in what happened in the immediate aftermath of the canal, how it affected that area and the what I would call really the um, great outbreak of imagination that accompanied the opening of the canal. It opened in 1825, 
And there were just so many different aspects to that phenomenon of um, Americans sort of suddenly freed from the, the constraints of New England. A lot of the people that settled along the Erie Canal were from New England, and they were just uh, open to new ideas and make up your own religion, make up your own uh, political party. And so these things all happened in a period of a couple of decades after the Erie Canal opened. So that, that became a focus of my book. So one of the central stories you write about in your book, and, and one connected to the theme of this podcast, is a, is a notorious murder involving Freemasons. I'd like to start by asking about that. Let's start with the, the central figure in the story, William Morgan. Can can you talk about him, who he was, what his background was? Yeah, uh, William Morgan was a um, sort of a, a swashbuckler. He had claimed he had uh, fought with Andrew Jackson down in New Orleans, and he'd sailed with John Lafitte and as the pirate. And uh, he decided in his later years, in his 50s, he, he got married and he decided to settle down in western New York. And he had a series, he, a, a series of events that were um, bad luck, left him pretty hard up for money. He joined the Freemasons and with the idea that these were sort of the better people, the, the more prosperous people. And if he could become friends with them, that might help him rise, rise in society. For whatever reason, he had a falling out with them. It's not really clear as to why he had the falling out. And they threw him out of the Freemasons. He then decided he would write a book revealing all the secrets of the Masons. And they had you know, rituals and secret handshakes and secret, various secrets about their history that uh, they did not want revealed. So they warned him. They tried to burn down the printer that was going to print the book that he was going to, where he was going to reveal his secrets. And then they abducted him. And he was taken up to Fort Niagara, which is on the Niagara River, right where it runs into Lake Ontario. And he was never seen again. And that was the first part. There's really two parts to the story because that was the, the, the first part was what happened to Morgan and the controversy he had with the Masons. And the second part, which is also very significant, was the reaction to his disappearance. So what level did, did Morgan achieve as a Mason? And again, I have listeners from, from around the world. Some may not be so, so knowledgeable about secret societies. <laughs> Maybe uh -huh. we should take a quick step back and talk about the organization of the yeah. Freemasonry, what it was and why it was important in early American society, not just early American society, but European society as well. Correct. Um, yeah, the, the Masons were, their origins are probably early 18th century. They, they themselves had this mythology that they went back to King Solomon and Middle Ages. And, and it was loosely connected to some of the guilds of the Middle Ages of stonemasons who traveled around they would start these societies so that when they traveled from one cathedral job to another, they would have friends there, these, their fellow Masons, and people who could vouch for their, their skills as a Mason, because otherwise, how, how would you know you? But the Masons had long since evolved away from that actual stone masonry and were just a fraternal group, uh, generally very forward-thinking, what we today would call progressive, 
they were in, in interested in the Enlightenment. They were they were not opposed to religion, but they 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 felt rationality was the the, the thing that they were after. And it was started in, in Europe, particularly in England. Uh, it came over here. Many of the founding fathers were Freemasons: George Washington, uh, Lafayette, people that were. Uh, these these uh, sons of the Enlightenment, let's say, and it was very popular. DeWitt Clinton, who was the big champion of the Erie Canal, was one of the highest-ranking Masons in the country. But it was also a it was like a club, and out on the frontier, which is where Western New York was mo- much more of a frontier land, it was a, a convenience to, to have a group of people that could get together and. And support each other, and uh, a lot of them were businessmen or public officials, and um, was sort of, sort of ex- not not totally exclusive, but a more exclusive group of of, of friends that, that um, would have, you know, they'd get together and drink and have uh, meet- meetings and celebrations and so forth. So that was the 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 origin of Freemasonry, and it was somewhat more sophisticated the people that were in it were tend to be a little bit more sophisticated but when you got out on the frontier the, the the members of the freemasons were a little bit naive i think uh, compared to the, what they would have been in somebody like dewey clinton who lived in new york city and i think that was part of the origin of this um uh, what happened with morgan it was that he ran into freemasons who were in particular they took literally some of the rituals and oaths that they had to swear to that had to do with if you ever reveal these secrets, you you would be essentially have your throat cut and be thrown into into the ocean and buried in, at the low tide mark. It was a lot of rigmarole, but it was to them it was a little bit more serious than it would have been to more more sophisticated Freemasons. And where was he a Freemason? This was Batavia. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Batavia, Batavia. is uh, the, uh, a town that's not on the canal, but it's uh, just a, a few miles south of the canal. It was one of the older towns out in, in western New York, and um, he he lived there. He may have worked on the canal because, uh, sort of ironically, he was actually a brick mason, uh, was his profession. That, that's the work he had, had done was as a brick mason. They didn't seem to like the work very much. And uh, so he may have worked on the canal um, when it was being built. This happened immediately after the canal opened. He ran into this problem with the Freemasons and and was abducted. And he had a, a family, and and they they struggled financially, right? Yes, exactly. He he as I mentioned, he'd, he'd married late. He married a beautiful young woman named Lucinda, and they had a. I think two children. They had one a daughter and a son that had just been born at the time of the controversy, and uh, he was struggling. He uh, he, had, he had been in debt. He had um, he never seemed to be able to catch on as in any particular profession. So I think one of the reasons that he decided, in order, in addition to getting even with the Masons who had thrown him out, he had the idea, which many authors have that his book would be a bestseller and he'd make a lot of money off of it. So that was a, that was a motivation for him to, to write the book. And when I say write the book, even his publisher said he, he actually compiled the book. The f- secrets of the Freemasons were not all that secret. Uh, there have been books published in Europe that 
revealed much of what he revealed. Morgan had um, become a third-degree Mason in one particular order he'd gotten up, which was uh, not real high, but you know, above the uh, entry level. But this idea of publishing the secrets of these local Freemasons was pretty sensational <laughs> in the area of New York. It, yes, exactly, and and it was it, the book was popular when it finally did came out after he disappeared. Uh, the book was was quite popular. Uh, the publisher, like all publishers, you want to take advantage of it, and he even uh, organized public readings for people that couldn't afford to buy the book. They could, you know, pay a quarter and come in and hear parts of it read. And it was, um, you know, it was like any book that's going to reveal the big secret, it's, it was it was popular. And um, most people didn't know about these other books that had been published earlier. So it was, uh, it, it, it created a, a, a pretty a big sensation. And particularly among Freemasons, they were really appalled that, the, you know, somebody would break the oath, reveal these, which were really pretty harmless secrets, but that they would be revealed to the public. A lot of writers during this time would write under aliases, right? Um, they they wanted to remain anonymous. Uh, uh, yes, that was that was a tradition. One classic example is Ben Franklin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm. I'm. That's I, it's a good. That's a good point, and I, I don't know exactly why that was. Um, Jesse Hawley, who I mentioned before, who had the idea for the canal, actually uh, published all his essays uh, anonymously. He never, he never. In fact, it wasn't until many years later that he he took credit for coming up with the idea for this very successful project. They had a different view of things. Yeah. So, how did people find out that this book was going to be printed? How, how did the word spread? Was it was it covered in local papers or was it just word of mouth? It was not in any way a secret. Uh, I don't. I, I, as far as it probably was advertisements taken out, but it. At the time that uh, Morgan was abducted, the book wasn't finished yet, or wasn't hadn't been completely printed. It was he he'd pretty much written or, or compiled what he had to do, but had and his uh, printer, of course, tried to every way he could to publicize it. And Morgan's disappearance was um, a, a goldmine for him because it got in the papers not just about the book, but about the the, the author suddenly disappeared. Um, that's something that every publisher loves. It's free publicity. But before he was abducted, there were numerous attempts to get him to stop, right? There were charges yes, that were the, trumped up. and Yeah, exactly. The Freemasons knew very well what he was doing, and they had told him and they warned him, and he'd been arrested several times. And what will play into the second part of the story was that many of the sheriffs and magistrates of the time were Freemasons, so they could easily get a sheriff to, to, and he was constantly in debt. So in, in those days, you went to jail when, if you were in debt, so he could be uh, prosecuted for debt. Or um, and he was he was kind of a, a, a rowdy character, you know, a heavy drinker, and uh, so yeah, he he ran into problems before, but uh, he was determined to get the book out. Can you kind of talk a little bit about this? abduction how how is he kidnapped what are the circumstances involving his abduction uh he he was uh there were there was a number of grand juries that, that looked into the 
to the affair uh, in, in the aftermath, and the, the, the sort of the story gradually came out uh, that he was, uh, and the first part of it was known that a sheriff had come from Canandaigua, which was another town uh, about a day's journey east of Batavia, where he lived, and the sheriff had come down there to arrest him for a debt that he owed uh, to a bartender, I think, back in Canandaigua, and had a group of, of Freemasons with him, and they took Morgan, and he agreed to go with them and, and try to settle this matter, and they took him down to Canandaigua, where he was put in jail. The, the next day, another group of Masons took him out of jail, uh, pay, paid the money that he owed, but then took him by force and put him in another wagon. And the story then gradually came out that they took him up through Rochester, which is uh, on Lake Ontario, westward along Lake Ontario until they got to the Niagara River and uh, Fort Niagara, which was a, an abandoned military uh, installation at that time. And uh, they they locked him up there. And in the meantime, his poor destitute wife is is waiting uh, yeah, his, waiting for him to come home from supper right because this yeah exactly he he went out he actually went out in the morning and he never came back and so she uh, heard then the story that he'd been taken there she hired a, a carriage to go down to canada herself she had to take her uh, infant son who was still nursing down there got to the jail and they told they said well his fine was paid, and he went off with these men, and that's all that she ever knew. There was some indication by uh, Freemasons there that if she would give up some additional papers that he had, maybe she would see him again. And um, she didn't. And they they were gonna they were gonna give her some money in, on top of it, and she wouldn't have anything to do with them. And went back to Batavia and started raising the alarm that the, that her husband had been abducted. What year again was this happening? Yeah, 1826. 1826, okay. Yeah. So he disappears. You mentioned that he's been locked up, right? He, he's being held in captivity? Well, once once he gets to to Fort Niagara, there's almost no, uh, no one would say. The, there were certainly Freemasons there that were handling his captivity, but nobody would say what had happened to him. So he was taken there, he was locked up, and, the, and then the story just ends. There were many stories then that came out later of what might have happened to him, but none of those were, was, was there any really solid evidence of what had become of him. Is there a scenario that's considered most likely to have happened? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I... Um, did quite a number of talks when I when the book came out, and one of the one of the talks I gave was at a Masonic lodge. And as soon as I walked in, a Mason came over to me and said, "You got it all wrong." And I I hadn't really made any judgment about what happened to Morgan. He says Morgan, his argument was Morgan never died. He was you know went off and did so and so. I said, "Well, yes, but I in the book I I give half a dozen." different stories of what might have happened to him. I don't make any judgment about which is true. But I would say that it's very unlikely that he lived. You know, a lot of the stories, he went to Canada. He uh, started a new life down in the Cayman Islands. He went to Turkey. There were several stories that he went to Turkey. He was seen in Turkey, in Smyrna. And um, 
I think all those are are very unlikely. I think it's very unlikely that he lived because he was a he was a publicity hound, and if he had lived and had managed to get away, even if he had agreed not to to you know reveal anything about himself, I think he would have turned up, and he never did turn up. So I think it's I think it's likely that he was killed. But uh, you know I can't prove it. Nobody can. Nobody has been able to prove anything, really, about the case ever since. Yeah, like you mentioned, it's, it seems highly unlikely he, he left uh, his beautiful young wife <laughs> at home yeah, without, without yeah, even exactly. saying goodbye. I mean, he's got this book yeah. that he thinks is going to be a bestseller, right? Yeah. So yeah, it was it was my theory, and you know I readily admit it's just a theory, is that some of the Masons, as I was mentioned before. Some of the Masons who abducted him were what we would today would call hicks. They were very naive, gullible people who believed very fervently in the rigmarole of the Masonic rituals and oaths and so forth, and maybe even thought they had a duty to to dispatch Morgan for what he'd done and to save Freemasonry. And um, they were overly zealous, and um, I think they just probably killed him and threw him in the river. And there were searches, right, in, in the river for his body, or no? What happened first, now we get into the second part, the reaction to the to the disappearance. Because of his wife and some other people that were interested, you know, friends of his, um, began to spread the word that the, that the whole thing was being covered up, which in a sense it was. The Freemasons who had abducted him, and people knew who they were, they refused to say anything. And they would serve a very short jail term for not answering questions to a grand jury, and that and that was it. A few were con- convicted, but kidnapping was only a misdemeanor in those days. So they went, they served very short jail terms. So people began to get this idea that the that there was a cover up going on, that the Masons had killed this man for trying to exercise his free speech and publish a book. And uh, the magistrates and the judges and the sheriffs were all covering it up. And that was uh, became a very um, widespread idea. And so they did, there were searches for his body. The anti-Masonic movement then began to gather strength. And this was a um, the, the reaction against Morgan's disappearance. And politicians began to get involved who were, looking for a way to, to attract people to their political point of view. And it became more and more and more of an issue in Western New York, and then it spread to the rest of Northeast, at least. And the idea was that there was a conspiracy afoot to replace the democratic government of the United States, which was still, and you know, this is in, in the uh, 1820s, was still... Much more of an experiment that was, you know, was only barely 50 years since the revolution. They were going to replace it with an aristocracy, and the Masons were the were were planning this takeover by aristocrats of America. That became a very widespread view, and um, it was really had no basis. But it was it was like today we would say a conspiracy theory or fake news, if you want to put it that way, and people became outraged and there were mass meetings and marches and uh the they formed an actual political party the anti-masonic party which became quite influential later 
and they searched for the body. They they tried to uh, force the people who knew something about it to talk, and none of them would talk. And um, then a body turned up. And I go into that in the book a little bit about the the body that washed up on Lake Ontario a year later on the shores of Lake Ontario. I've got to ask you about that. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> uh, there was a there was a uh, a gentleman in Rochester named Thurlow Weed, and I thought, which I always thought was one of the great names of the 19th century, Thurlow Weed. Sounds like a Charles Dickens was, character, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was he was kind of the Karl Rove of that day. He was a he was not a politician himself, but he was a political fixer, and he he ran a newspaper and he was involved with various political factions, and he saw this as an opening. He changed the name of his newspaper to the Anti-Masonic uh, Chronicle or something like that that was began to print all this anti-Masonic uh, propaganda. And he heard about this body that washed up quite a long ways from Fort Niagara, but like 40 miles down the lake. And he went up there and gathered people as he was going. They had a, quite a big crowd. They dug up the body that had been buried that nobody knew who it was and um, had, had an inquest. Now, they got uh, Morgan's wife to come up there, and um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a vivid scene in my imagination to imagine this guy. First, he's been floating in the lake for a long time. And then he was buried for a while. Now they're digging him up. It was pretty, um, as I said, they couldn't recognize us by his face, certainly. But she said he had the particular uh, arrangement of his teeth. He had this row of double teeth, which was very rare. And she brought along a dentist who had pulled a tooth from him and said, here is the tooth that he'd pulled. And by God, it fits right in there. So um, they said, well, that must be him then. So he was taken in a solemn procession back to Batavia. They took this body and buried it as William Morgan. But before the uh, dust settled, a woman from Canada turned up, and she said, uh, my husband disappeared just like a month ago, and I think it's him. And she described his clothing, because the clothing, everybody agreed, was not clothing that was associated with Morgan. Even his wife admitted that. So this other woman said she described the clothing perfectly. But there was it was all sort of fishy. You know, she her way had been paid by the Freemasons. Uh, they were anxious to um, to disprove that this was Morgan because they said he had never been killed. And they said, well, it's either it's Morgan, but in this other man's clothes, or it's this other man, but he doesn't. The, the corpse didn't really look like her husband as far as the height and the type of hair and so forth. Um, but a, another inquest was held. They decided it was it was this other woman's husband, and that he was then dug up one more time and buried as her, as her husband. And um, it was certainly added to the mystery of the whole thing. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, 
And of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So, how long did the anti-Mason party last? Uh, they, it was uh, relatively short-lived, but very influential. Um, they, um, they started w- uh, within a year after Morgan disappeared. They built up first in New York State. They, they, one reason that Thurlow Weed wanted to prove that this was Morgan's body was that it was just before the election that was coming up, and he thought that would help the uh, local anti-Masonic candidates uh, get elected, which uh, they, there were a phenomenal number, surprising number of them did get elected. It then grew into a more of a national movement, and they, in 1832, they ran a candidate for president. And they actually had the first presidential convention. Uh, before that, the uh, parties had uh, would have just a, the caucus, of the a congressional caucus would appoint the candidates. The anti-Masons didn't have anybody in Congress, so they had a convention, and then the other parties took up that that tradition of having a political convention. They ran a candidate for president who didn't do much, but they then merged with the Whig Party. The anti-Masons were a big factor in the Whig Party. Then the Whig Party continued up until the 1850s, and then it split over slavery, and part of the Whig Party became the Republican Party. So you see a lot of a lot of high-level politicians had connections to the anti-Masonic party, uh, including uh, John Quincy Adams, uh, who had been president, was now back in Congress, uh, Millard Fillmore, who eventually became president, 
and and particularly William Seward, who lived along the Erie Canal region. He would have become president in 1860, but he was beaten out by Abraham Lincoln, and he then went on to become Lincoln's uh, Secretary of State. All of them had started as, not John Quincy Adams, but the, the others had started their political careers in this anti-Masonic movement. So the the anti-Masons had a, a, a very big impact on uh, the course of politics in America. The William Morgan affair was was remembered. It was very, very well known in the 19th centuries. Now it's pretty much forgotten, but the... Um, I think it was in the 1880s that they um, put up a memorial to about 56 years after the he disappeared. They put up a memorial to Morgan that you can still see in the in the cemetery in Batavia, 37 foot high granite pillar with a statue of Morgan, and it's, the plaque says he, he was a martyr to free speech that he uh, was had died because he tried to exercise his free speech. As I always point out, it's the the pillar is so high you can't even see the statue. It's just barely visible at the top, uh, which was kind of appropriate because uh, of, the, of the sort of ghostly demise of William Morgan. They they probably didn't want the, any Freemasons defacing the statue either. <laughs> they, they actually, you know, the funny thing it's funny you should mention that because the Freemasons themselves set up guards when this. This is and this is like literally this is like 50 years more than 50 years later. They put guards up in the cemetery because they knew if anybody uh, defaced or attacked the Morgan Memorial, they would be blamed for it. So that was how, that was how potent it was back in the 19th century. You know, it's, now it's uh, now it's really only known by uh, Freemasons. It's still it's still a, a sore point with Freemasons because it. It really damaged the Freemason movement for a time, maybe 10, 20 years. A lot of the lodges in western New York closed, and quite a few in other parts of the country closed. Uh, but then it gradually came back, and, and you know, it's, now it's having its problems again today, but uh, was very, very viable for many, many, many years. It's, it's interesting in history, and it's happened a handful of times, where there's been an issue so volatile that an entire political party was based on that issue, either for or against it. I mean, I know in the 1890s, the Prohibition Party was was created yeah, for the sole purpose of fighting the evils of, of alcoholism. And it's hard to imagine, but gosh, an entire political party formed on the basis of an animosity towards a secret society. Yeah, so that, that is, it's an interesting, uh, and, and one of the things that's been cited about the anti-Masonic Party, uh, there was a, a historian wrote a book back in the 50s during the McCarthy era, and he looked back at the anti-Masonic movement and cited that as what he called the uh, paranoid style of American politics, where people gravitate to these conspiracy theories, and just like McCarthy saw a communist, you know, around every corner. Uh, they essentially go overboard in their enthusiasm for some conspiracy, and I think it's something that um, we're seeing today. I'd like to ask you too um, about a couple of other really, really fascinating tales that you tell in this book. I want to say on a little bit of a lighter note, but not really. <laughs> it's the the story about a man by the name of Sam Patch. 
also known as the uh-huh. Yan- Yankee Leaper. Can can you talk a little bit about him? I'd never heard of him before. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, as I've thought about this, uh, even after writing the book, I, you know, I think that this idea of imagination was very, very influential in 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 sparking a lot of these events and move, movements of that time. Uh, Sam Patch was a, um, he was born around, I think, 1799. He was one of the first factory workers in America. And the, the textile factories uh, were just coming in then. A lot of them were, uh, a lot of the employees were children. He started when he was six or seven years old working in the factory. And very hard work, long hours, drudgery, just drudgery. And so for entertainment, he and other kids that worked there would jump into the river from bridges. Of course, all the mills were built on water, so there was always a river there. And they would jump into the river from the bridge, or then he would climb up on top of the mill and jump. And he got so he could jump from almost 100 feet into the into the river. This was in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. As he got older, he moved down to Patterson, New Jersey, which is another big mill town, one of the early mill towns. And he uh, jumped over the falls. There's quite a high falls in Patterson. And it was, people were amazed by, to see this feat. He, he sort of invented the idea of the daredevil, that someone would risk his life jumping over the falls. It was it created a great sensation. So he thought, well, better, rather than work in a factory, I'll start I'll become a professional daredevil. He went up to um, Niagara Falls. He didn't actually jump over Niagara Falls, but he built a, a high tower at the bottom of the um, falls and jumped into the river right where the falls is coming over. Again, it was a, the, because of the Erie Canal that uh, the Niagara, Niagara Falls had become a great tourist attraction, so there were a lot of people there, and he would pass a hat afterwards and collect money. He did that several times. One of the interesting technical aspects of his thing was it's much easier to jump into the sort of uh, frothy water below a falls than it is to jump into flat water. He would also jump like from the mast of ships, but flat water is much trickier because if you hit wrong on flat water, it can kill you, whereas the bubbling water at the bottom of a falls is much softer, let's say. He went to another falls, which was in the middle of Rochester, New York, which was down a little bit east of Niagara Falls. It's actually one of the one of the higher falls in New York State. And he got he gathered at that time I think Rochester had a population of about nine thousand, had boomed during the Erie Canal era. There was about twelve thousand some some estimates at least, twelve thousand people came. Some people came from Canada, some they traveled for days to get there to watch him jump over the falls. So he made the jump successfully, and then he decided, well, I'll do one more. And then then he jumped again, and he never came up. And people were, you imagine all these people just crowding around to watch this thing, and suddenly it goes bad, and you're just left there like, what have I just seen? What have, who, who am I to be looking at this man killing himself? And so it, it really shook people. And uh, the story then that goes on after St. Patch was that the Rochester invited uh, one of the great early evangelists to come to the city a year later 
and he started one of the great religious revivals of American history, sort of in reaction to this, what all the respectable people said was an awful uh, spectacle of Sam Patch. They did find his body the next next spring, lump of ice down by the Lake Ontario, and they, he's now buried in the cemetery in Rochester. But it was it, it sort of goes to show you how hard up people were for entertainment that they would travel for days to see a man jump off a you know one little leap off of a it was about 120 feet I think down they jumped into the uh, Genesee River. Uh, but you know the, the daredevil thing has gone on still popular today. And he had kind of built up this mythology over just a short period of time as well. He had survived some pretty amazing jumps, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And 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 there was an element to it of defiance, uh, similar to some of the other people I talk about in the book, including William Morgan. So he was a he was of the lower class. He was he was a factory worker, and that he resented the famous people, the successful people. And his motto was, some things can be done as well as others, which was a meaningless statement, but it was, you know, it was sort of a snubbing his nose at these people who thought they were so famous. Well, I can be famous just by jumping off of a cliff. And there was that element. He was, he was very much, they think he may have been participated in one of the first strikes uh, of textile workers down in Patterson and, um, it was almost defying God. You know, it was like, if this is what life is, if your childhood can be taken away from you and you're forced to work in a factory, then I don't care about my life. And so he was out with that kind of an attitude. Not, he didn't say that directly, but he, there was that was implied. And so the ministers and the, and the respectable people didn't want that idea to spread. So they brought in this evangelist to, uh, to put people back in their rightful place, I guess. Speaking of religion, the other story that you again you kind of intertwine in in this book is, and you alluded to this earlier, was the story of of uh, young Joseph Smith, the father of Mormonism, right? Yes, and you know I think you can see parallels there too because the Smith family was also very poor, and they had uh, they lost their farm in Vermont. They moved down to Palmyra, which was uh, near Rochester, and it's uh, right on the Erie Canal. They got there just before the canal went through. And uh, they um, they worked as hard as they could in doing day labor, farm labor, uh, scraped up enough money to buy a, a plot of woods, essentially. It was 100 acres of woods, and then they had to convert that into a farm. And that's that's an enormous task of cutting down trees, burning them, planting crops, you know, pulling the stumps up, plowing all the work of a farm, only you're starting with a forest. So that it was, um, you know, they were they were tough, low-class people. And in one of the ways that Joseph Smith made money was as what was called a scryer. And that was a, a person who could find lost objects, and could find buried gold. And they would have these gold hunts, and he would go out and lead them to look for buried gold. It was a lot of it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, but... Uh, he made a little bit of money doing that, but then he found these golden tablets. He was directed to them by a heavenly being. He dug them up. He translated the Book of Mormon from those hieroglyphics were on the golden tablets, and um, 
that was a phenomenal work of imagination that uh it's almost mind boggling if you look at the book and it was six hundred pages, three hundred uh named characters, plots within plots, flashbacks within flashbacks. Uh, all telling how America was populated um, in a sort of biblical fashion, explaining a lot of things that were controversial at the time. He uh, had the belief that the Garden of Eden had been in Missouri, and the Indians were part of this, um, uh, the remnants of this earlier civilization and so forth. He wrote that all in a matter of months, and he never revised a single word, went right to the printer, he printed 5,000 copies, which was a huge number in those days. And um, then he formed the religion around the uh, the book and began to move west. His always thought his destiny was in the west. And they moved to Ohio, and then he moved out to Missouri and then ended up in Illinois. So it's a phenomenal story uh, in itself, not to... Not to uh, you know, come down one way or the other on the beliefs of the Mormons, that's something else. But the story of Joseph Smith is quite phenomenal. And he was killed in 1844, and he he'd translated the book in 1830. So in 14 years, he formed a religion that has, is one of the, now a, a world religion, uh, 15 million people. How old was he when he wrote that? Well, when he tr- he always said he never said he wrote anything. He he had revelations and he dictated the revelations. Uh, so his wife and then a secretary they had would write it down, uh, but he he didn't claim to be the author of it. But he he was 24 when he found the um, and translated the book, and then he was 40. Uh, he was um, 39 when he when he died. I don't know, uh, admittedly, much about Mormonism. You said he was killed. How was he killed? Uh, he, um, uh, the Book of Mormon is one aspect of the religion. Uh, that's their, their uh, foundational testament. But he continued to have many revelations which were gathered in other books of Scripture. And one of his revelations was that he had read in the Bible where King Solomon had 700 wives. And he also, uh, Solomon also had uh, 300 concubines. And so Joseph Smith started thinking, and he, he decided to add to his religion this idea of polygamy, or what he called plural marriage. And he, had, he was now settled out in Illinois. They had built a city out of, out of wilderness. It was the second biggest city in Illinois after Chicago, and it was totally controlled by Mormons. And Joseph Smith uh, had his own army. He was he was considering running for president. He was really riding high, but he put in this thing about polygamy, and he didn't say to his male followers, "You can do it." He said, "You must do it. You must take additional wives." And this is a Victorian era. People were appalled, disgusted by the idea of it. Some of them. And um, some went along reluctantly, and I'm sure some went along enthusiastically. But the ones that were disgusted started a dissident movement within the religion, they, they, and they bought a printing press, started putting out their own newspaper, opposing Joseph Smith, not opposing Mormonism, but his doctrines. He'd gone too far in his doctrines. And he, uh, Smith had the printing press dragged into the street destroyed, they he he sort of lost 
his perspective because he he thought he was the ruler of this town he could do anything he wanted he forgot that there was a civil authority in the state so they complained to the state authorities and he was taken and he was arrested and put in jail for um, for what he'd done this opposition to the to the dissidents and while he was in jail the the mormons were hated wherever they went and there was big anti-mormon faction in the state partly because they were um, also believed in um, they were opposed to slavery i won't say they're abolitionists but they were opposed to slavery Uh, that was a very hot topic in the 1840s so a, a mob of people came in broke into the jail and, and killed him and his brother. So it was never he never made it to Utah. The the trek to Utah then came then they decided they had to get out of there that away from civilization. And Brigham Young, who also uh, was a, had grown up on the Erie Canal, was the one who led them out to Utah. Well this has been great. Where can people learn more about you and the work that you've done? Well, I, I have a website that, that sort of a, be a good starting point. It's called jackkellybooks.com, and um, uh, the book is available. Uh, it's available in bookstores. And you've written some novels as well, right? Yeah, I, I started out as uh, writing crime novels. Uh, I wrote a book uh, about John Dillinger, and then I got into history. I, I wrote a book about the history of gunpowder, what we call black powder, uh, 900-year history of. Uh, very interesting substance. And um, I've written a book about the Revolutionary War, and I, I'm working on a new book about uh, the Pullman strike, which was a big railroad strike in 1894. So I keep busy. Goodness. I, I if, if you don't mind, I'd love to have you back on again. I, I think an episode about the history of gunpowder would be a great episode for Most Notorious. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, there, there are many different aspects to it. Uh, so, yeah. Perfect. Well, well, thank. Thanks again for your time. Okay. Well, it was a great pleasure, Eric, and um, good luck with the podcast. I've been talking to Jack Kelly, author of Heaven's Ditch: God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rubinus and have a safe tomorrow. P.S. Don't forget to subscribe to Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. First episode coming out soon. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.